Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And for the first time, I'm not joined by my buddy, Adam. We had a, uh, a little scheduling conflict here. So I'm going to go at it on my own. And if the episode sucks, everyone can write me some nasty emails and messages, but I think we'll be okay. So if memory serves me correct on the last few episodes, I've alluded to the fact that I've been working with and coaching a PGA Tour player, which has been really fun and interesting for me. I don't think I've revealed his name. So today we're going to do the big reveal, I guess. Not that anyone's super excited, it's Mackenzie Hughes. So Mac is joining me on the sweet spot. Mac, thanks for taking time out of your day, buddy, and joining us. Yeah, thanks, John. It's nice to be on the podcast and looking forward to having a good conversation. Yeah, this is a super controversial show, so I'm going to be really digging deep here. It's going to get a little wild for you. I'll, I'll, I can't I'll... wait. <laughs> we could talk about a lot of things. We're recording this on December 11th. I'm not sure when we'll release it, probably a week later. But in the past few days, we've had John Rom going to live, the golf ball rollback. A lot of things have been happening in the golf world. Mac has been vocal on social media about them. We could talk about that, and maybe we will, but this is a hardcore game improvement show, Mackenzie, so I think we're first going to get into... People love when we bring pro golfers on the show. We had Michael Kim on recently, and a lot of people responded like, you know, thanks for giving us an inside look into what's going on in his game. So we'll talk about that stuff first, if that's okay with you. Sounds great. So let's start off with some softballs. I recently was watching you on TV, and they said that you don't go by Mac as much anymore. It's McKenzie. So tell me about, I've called you both already. So let's clarify for the people. Is it Mac or McKenzie anymore? Is there a standard use? That was controversial for a moment there. I introduced myself as McKenzie whenever I meet someone and my friends call me Mac. And I would say it was like my second or third year on tour. I thought, you know what? I'm just going to change my profile on the PGA Tour site to Mac. So I went by Mac Hughes and be really clear, you know, everyone would know it's Mac and all these people were like, did you change your name? You know, like what's going on? Like why, why are you Mac all of a sudden? (laughs) And I was like, you know, it's, I don't know. It's like Jonathan going by John or Tommy going by Tom or David going by Dave. I don't know. I just thought it would be easier. It'd be a little, a little easier to say and people ran with it and made a story out of nothing. So I'd say it's Mackenzie. And if you want to call me Mac, then that's perfect. If you want to call me any other thing, then, uh, yeah, that's your choice. So yeah, I just, uh, I'm glad we cleared that up. Yeah. So it's, uh, (laughs) it's whatever you want. If I meet someone for the first time, it's Mackenzie. All right. I'll probably use both. I'm in a similar dilemma. My real name is Jonathan. My, I think my mother is the only one who calls me Jonathan. You imposter. You imposter. Yeah. So most people know me by John J-O-N. And for some reason, when I sign up for USGA events, I use Jonathan. So when I showed up to the US Mid-Am, everything said Jonathan on it. And I went to them, I'm like, can you change this? And they're like, nope, it's too late. So I'm in somewhat of a similar situation, but obviously not as serious. So I'm glad you cleared that up. Question number two that I had for you. Did the PGA Tour ever dock you for me getting sunscreen all over your courtesy car? (laughs) Uh, You know what? I actually was able to get all that out of the car. For the listeners out there, John is very diligent with his sunscreen application. And he was with me the first playoff event in Memphis. And he was tagging along in my uh, courtesy vehicle. And 
uh, didn't think much of it, but then when he got out of the car, it was like a ghost had sat in my seat. <laughs> and uh, so needless to say, there was a few wipes used to get that sunscreen off the leather seat, but uh, it looked uh, brand new when I was done with it. So you're off the hook. All right, that's good. Michael Kim had told us in the last episode we had him on about how awesome it is. You guys get these like sick courtesy cars everywhere you show up. And I showed up to Memphis thinking that Uber would be a viable option and I didn't rent a car and I quickly found out that Uber service in Memphis is horrible. So Mac was incredibly nice and was driving me around to dinners and to the course. And on that day, it was really hot out and I had applied a ton of sunscreen. And I got, when I got back to my hotel room, you sent me a text message with these nice black leather seats covered in sunscreen. And I think my response was something like, you, you call this guy up to the big leagues and he can't handle himself. So I'm glad the PJ Tour did not charge you for that. I'm glad we cleared that up for everyone. So let's get into the serious stuff. You recently had a really good finish to the fall season. You finished tied seventh in Mexico, and then you had a solo second at the RSM. I'm sure a lot of people watched it. You had an incredible duel. I'm not going to butcher his name. It's with Ludwig Ober. Is that correct? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Did I get it right? So you, you had an awesome duel with him over the weekend. And on Saturday, you had a putt for 59, which... I think it was the second time in your career you had that opportunity. It's very infrequent that someone gets that opportunity. You and I talk a lot about what you're thinking about on the course. And I think it's interesting for people to hear what's going on. And even a player at your level, you're one of the best in the world. And a lot of people assume that we have to be perfect mentally and our thoughts are amazingly positive all the time. But, you know, tell people what was going through your head on Saturday at what point did you know you had a chance to shoot a 59? And then when you realized it, what was going through your head during those last few holes? Yeah, it's incredibly rare and also super fun. Those days, like I said, they don't come around often. So when you have those days, you're really trying to enjoy it. And, you know, I look back on both those days. I remember the other chance I had to shoot 59. And, you know, I look back on that one uh, really fondly. And so you and I talked about this, but my thoughts that day resembled the thoughts I had, let's say midsummer, when I wasn't playing as well. But I'd say they were a little bit quieter. So like the doubts that would creep in weren't weren't quite as big or quite as loud. And I think the way I responded to those doubts and those thoughts was different. It was more of a a reassurance when that came up that like this is okay, this is normal, and you can play great even with those thoughts. So I kept reminding myself that even though, I think it would surprise a lot of people, but even though I was playing that well on Saturday, I mean, there were still shots and moments where I had commitment issues or you know I was still battling, you know, trying to find the right thoughts sometimes and you know, wondering if like, you know, playing this great round, but it could come apart. You know, and I think that for me, it was just that constant reassurance that I was playing great and that it was okay to feel these things. And I think that there's times when I have those thoughts and then I'm too hard on myself for having those thoughts. And then it becomes a problem because it's like you can't have those thoughts. And then, you know, it's like you're manifesting it. You're making the problem bigger than it actually is. When you, you know, break it down, you're like, we're human beings. 
you know, we're meant to do this. We're meant to doubt. And I think the best players in the world are just able to respond in those moments, reassure themselves that this is normal. This is what people do uh, on a human level. And they respond in a positive way with, you know, some affirmations or some positive self-talk and kind of just get back into that process. So for me, that's something I really lean on is getting into my process of, okay, what can I control over this shot? You know, I got, let's say one or two things I'm really focusing on that week for. And that's something that for me, I can really lean on is like, Hey, okay, now this is a big shot. I'm a little bit nervous. What can I control here? And I'm going to feel good about this shot regardless if I just focus on these things. And so that's something that, you know, again, during that whole round, I mean, all these things are the things I'm dealing with and the things I'm trying to think about. And it's actually nerve wracking. I mean, as much as you're playing really great golf, I mean, those last couple of holes, I was really starting to feel that opportunity present itself. And I get down to 17 and 18. And I mean, I'm in 18 fairway and, and I'm, my heart's thumping. I mean, history on the PGA Tour is hard to, it's different than like, just winning a tournament sometimes because it's like history in that sense. Like there's been 12 guys that have shot 59 on the PGA tour. So like when they show that, that stat sometime in the future, it could be 50 years from now. And there could only be like 15 guys that have done that. You know, I could have been one of those guys. So like, to me, that's not lost on me when I'm like, I'm in that moment that like, this is something incredibly rare. And now I know we've had a 58 now, but it's still a very rarefied air to be in and yeah so i was feeling it the putt hearts well you hit a great let's first acknowledge you did hit a would you have like 175 in something like that yeah 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 and you hit a pretty damn good shot i think it was all over it just came up maybe what do you have a 15 foot putt something like that just short of it yep i've told people that like the read was really tricky and it was kind of on a grain change and i didn't really see it going to the right and then at the end i kind of saw it going a bit left and you know, I got the middle part a little bit wrong. It went a little bit right in the middle. And then the left really didn't happen like I thought it would. And I've told people that if I was in that situation, I would love to have a putt that broke a foot versus it being straight. You know, I just, that's just <laughs> how my mind works. And I just feel like, you know, when the putt breaks a foot, you know, like there's zero doubt, right? I mean, like you're trying to figure out how much, but you know the direction it's headed, right? I feel like that for me is comforting, like knowing, hey, this putt's breaking. It's a matter of how much. But when I have that putt on a spine, you know, and it's got a little bit of both directions in it, to me, that's a way harder putt to get right. So yeah, I felt like I had a pretty good putt, didn't go in, but in a sense, maybe it was a blessing in that like, you know, shooting 59 would have created a bit more of a buzz, a little more, you know, noise on Saturday night. And I was trying to get ready to win a tournament on Sunday. So, you know, shooting 60 was like an amazing round, but it was fairly quiet for me Saturday evening. And I went back to work on Sunday trying to do it again. Yeah. And the next day you shot, you guys had a really good duel. You shot 63 the next day. You know, we spoke about this. It was good enough to win on most weekends, I think you're 25 under for the tournament and you just happened to be playing with a guy who was on fire also. And what I find interesting, you know, the conversations I have with Mac is that a lot of the stuff that he and other professional golfers are dealing with, obviously it's on a far different level. They're play for a living. There's a lot more pressure. There's a lot of people watching, 
but I don't think it's too dissimilar to the problems we all face as normal golfers. Like it is this very long four, five, six hour round where you have a lot of time for your mind to wander and think about different things and they're not going to all be good. And even on Sunday, like when we spoke after your round, like you played awesome. Like you played great on the back nine, you made a ton of birdies and it didn't sound like your thoughts were too dissimilar from Saturday where it was, yeah, there were some swings you felt good over and some swings you weren't feeling good over. But for the most part, on the outside, when you look at any one play, you might assume that they're 100% confident. And, you know, what's it like on the inside? You knew you had a chance to win. It would have been your third victory in, in your career, which would have been a big deal. And you played great. But again, it wasn't five hours of consistent thought. You had some ups and downs mentally, right? 100%. And kind of back to your point about like, how it's kind of the same for golfers of all levels. I mean, you kind of sparked me there thinking about something else that we, you know, for, from you and I's history. But like, I remember again, I met you through Twitter and that's how we, <laughs> you know, got our acquaintance. We're Twitter friends. We're Twitter friends. And I remember, you know, I was following you and, and one of your tweets like really caught my attention where I, it was a thread and you basically, I have it pulled up right here. You said that uh, here are nine powerful and actionable mental techniques any golfer can use. And I thought to myself when I was reading it that like, even though I play this game for a living, all these things apply to me as well. You know, the first one is commitment to fun. And I can tell you my first PGA Tour win at the RSM Classic, that was one of my thoughts that I had written down in my yardage book. And it sounds cliche and silly to say you're going to go play you know on the pga tour and, and try and have fun which but you know golf can become a job for us you know it can become something that can kind of suck the fun out of it if it becomes too serious and for me i have to be able to strike that balance between being too serious and i'm never going to go too far and have you know, too much fun and be like, you know, too laid back, but I have to find that right balance for me. And it's not being locked in all the time. I have to have conversations, have to tell stories, have to, you know, hear a few jokes. And to me, like that kind of helps you focus when you need to focus. If you can kind of bring yourself out of the moment every once in a while, but like, it's just like you said, like the things that you had on that tweet, you know, you said, no one gives a shit. And I was like, that's perfect. Cause I'm like, I usually think that people are all, you know, thinking about me and judging me and, and all this stuff. And it's like the spotlight effect, right? Like you told me, it's just like, hey, no one really cares. And if they do, it's for five minutes and then they forget about it. And we have this we yeah, have this perception that, that everyone's watching and analyzing and, and observing us. And it's like, Mac, get out of your own head. Like, they don't care. I, I can go on, but you just had, you know, some really great things to say. And I remember reading that thinking – maybe this guy can help me because at the time I wasn't playing the way I wanted to. And so that's when I reached out to you and here we are. Yeah, I think it was, so I got message from Mac. It was in early July, so about five months ago. And that was one of the things he said to me was that I know the stuff you're talking about is meant for the quote unquote average player. And to be honest, whenever I write anything on Twitter, we talk on this podcast, all of the topics that Adam and I discuss in my book, I am thinking about the typical golfer when I write this stuff, but it was fascinating to me when I got the message from Mac saying, well, this is helping me, you know, maybe you can help me hold myself accountable to, 
you know, my habits, my mental thoughts and stuff like that. That's really the bulk of the work we do with each other is that you know, I'm holding Mackenzie accountable to certain habits in his life on and off the golf course, allowing him to kind of download his thoughts on me and we'll talk through them rationally. We'll talk about strategy, but it's mainly just an interesting exercise to show that, you know, Mac is trying to win PJ Tour events, majors, he's top 100 in the world. He's trying to get on President's Cup teams in the Olympics this year. It's There's a lot at stake and it's his job. And it's just interesting that a lot of the stuff that he's going through to play his best, again, is not too dissimilar from what people struggle with on a Saturday afternoon, thinking about what their friends think about them if they top an opening tee shot. Of course, the skill level and the actual shots are different, but the tricks our mind plays on us are the same. So, Mac, you had a interesting season in the sense that, I mean, it's been a really long season because the PGA Tour did this wraparound thing, but you won the RSM in 2017 and his second PGA Tour win came five years later, almost exactly, at the Sanderson. And we spoke about this with Michael Kim. You know, he won the John Deere in like 2018 and then he struggled for a really long time to get back on the tour. And you got your second victory just over a year ago. And then, you know, this season was not all roses for you. There are some struggles. Like, Can you talk about how hard that is to go from October all the way through, you know, the summer and fall feeling like, you know, I'm trying to do the right things here, but the results aren't what I'm getting and like how frustrating that can be for someone who does this for a living. It's not easy, right? No, it definitely isn't. And I think the longer you go without that validation of the hard work coming through and results. So you, you spend this time not seeing that kind of come through on the golf course and yeah, the doubts become louder and louder and it's just difficult to kind of keep staying in the course, right? You think that like I'm doing all the right things, but why isn't it coming through? Why, you know, when am I going to see that breakthrough moment? And honestly, I waited a long time. Like you said, it was a, I mean, in essence, it was like a 14 month season. So it was super long and the longest one we've ever had. And I got off to this fantastic start. So I win the second event of the season. I have a great fall. I think I was like top five in the FedEx Cup through the fall. Now I head into the new year like with all this confidence, you know, pretty high expectations for myself. And, you know, the spring was okay. I had a couple decent finishes, played well the match play. And, you know, had a decent Masters. And then I went cold. Wasn't doing anything different. Just for whatever reason, golf wasn't working out for me. The scores weren't there. And I felt like I was doing a lot of the right stuff. It just, you know, you start to play a few rounds that you don't like or that aren't great and you lose a bit of confidence. And, you know, then week after week, you felt like you were just kind of getting chipped away at. And yeah, that's tough. I mean, like you said, you do this for a living and you're spending a lot of time on the road, sometimes away from your family. And yeah, when you're not getting the results, it makes it even harder to be away. So you feel like you're missing your family and you're not getting what you want when you're traveling and competing. So that was really tough. And I had some pretty dark moments. I mean, again, dark moments for a golfer where you're just thinking to yourself, like, I don't know, can I do this? Can I get myself back to playing that kind of golf again? And I think that one of the best quotes that I've kind of heard in my tour career and and being out there is like, when you're playing bad, you're not as bad as you think. And when you're playing great, you're not as good as you think, you know, <laughs> like, and I think that's perfect because I like the bottom end and the top end of our golf 
on a PGA tour is never that, that much different. There's never like huge glaring things that you're like, cause when I look back on it and I look at the golf I played, let's say prior to Mexico and RSM, it felt really close. Even though the results, like I finished 50th in Napa, I missed the cup by one at the Sanderson farms when I defended, I finished like 45th or something in Japan. And I was thinking to myself, I'm doing a lot of really good things, but here and there, there's a couple shots I need to kind of clean up. But I, I just never felt like I was far from having a good week. Now, granted, to the average person, you think, well, he, he finished 45th. Like, he didn't play very good. You know, I look at it differently, and I kind of re- really hyperanalyze and go, okay, well, I think I was doing a lot of really good things, and I just not getting the result. And I just think that for me, and then I started to play well in Mexico, it's an up and down at a, at a critical moment, followed by, you know, hitting a good approach shot and hitting it, you know, at the six feet and making the putt. Where like maybe when you're not playing as well, you miss that like up and down, and then on the next hole you hit to six feet and then you just don't convert. And it's like a little sort of momentum piece in a round where it like it holds together and goes forward. And then, like, when you're not playing as well, it kind of goes the other direction. And it seems like such a minor little kind of spot in the round, but they those things add up over the course of a tournament. And I felt like when I played well in Mexico, played well at the RSM, I kind of did those little, little things really well. Kind of had that momentum on my side. Yeah, so it's not big things that kind of separate. Like, when I said I was struggling, and then to when I was playing well there at the end of the year, like, it didn't seem like there was much that happened. I didn't change anything really drastic but uh, as you know we obviously kind of cleaned up some of my thoughts and i felt like i was in a really good place mentally to play that golf yeah i think the interesting thing about being on the inside of this and, and kind of talking with you during this whole process was that everything's magnified at your level so when a you know when a normal golfer is not playing well what do they feel the urge to do? Go on YouTube and start watching a bunch of videos. Like all of a sudden, like your ears open up, you're more open to suggestions and you feel like you need to keep changing to get better. And that's one of the main themes of this show. A lot of the conversations Adam and myself have is when do you intervene and when do you just kind of let it go and let the variance of golf play out? Now, in some instances, you do need to intervene. Like a lot of golfers should see a coach and get swing lessons, or there might be a time in your round where you have to, we talk about on-course adjustments. But in the case with McKenzie and watching him play at the level he does, we almost have to work really hard at keeping things simple. Because again, when someone like him is not playing well for three, four, five months, what is your urge to do, Mac? Like as a hard worker, someone who's really dedicated, it's like, I have to do something different to get better here. Like that, talk a little bit about that as like a week to week, like it's hard to show up to, like you fly all the way over to Scotland, for example, and you miss the cut and you come back. It's like, that sucks. Like, and when you get home, you're like, well, what am I going to do differently now? Yeah. And I think, like you said, as a hard worker and someone that likes to put in the time, my fault would be, to have a result or maybe a few results that you don't like and add things, you know, add more elements to it than were already there. And I feel like it's just in an effort to find something like hopefully something sticks, hopefully something works. And I think you and I, you know, 
have had some great conversations lately. And I just remember finishing the regular season, you know, finishing 51st, kind of working through a lot of things in that six week break and really coming to a place of clarity as I started the fall. You know, my tendency is to not panic, but like you have a mini panic. Like you miss two cuts in a row, three cuts in a row, and it becomes a not a YouTube search, but it becomes a little bit like a, you know, a little bit like that where it's like, do I need to talk to a different coach? Do I need to get some advice, you know, off the course? So you're trying to, you know, just do different things. Do I need to change my routine? Do I need to, you know, mark my golf balls differently? I don't know. You just, you just think about (laughs) all this different stuff. And now I've gotten to a point where I'm very comfortable with, what I do with my game and almost every time we've talked this fall, I've told you that, you know, nothing has changed. I missed the cut at the Sanderson farms and I felt, I still felt like I was going in the right direction and missing the cut there didn't change that, you know, cause it, it's hard at this level, but you can't let that one shot determine how you're going to feel about your game or that week. Because like, if I had made the cut on a number and played a great weekend, I would have felt okay about it. But I missed the cut by a shot. So I can't just go into this dark hole now and think like, oh man, I missed the cut by a shot. My golf game stinks. I need to change things. So for me, it's almost like, can I look at the long term and play the long game and keep doing the little things really well over and over and over again and continue to trust and believe in my abilities even on the weeks where it doesn't quite happen because inevitably I know I'm going to have weeks going forward where I just don't have it. The game's not quite where it needs to be, but I'll keep doing the right things those weeks and I'll keep having the, you know, the right attitude and keep working on my process. And I feel as though if I do that stuff often enough and just over and over and over again, I'll get enough good results where I'll be happy. And like I said, it's just, it's hard to be consistent in this game and like consistency is a, a probably an overused term in golf. Like I play with amateur golfers and pro-ams and they want to be more consistent. And I'm like, pro golfers aren't really consistent. I mean, and, and you don't, <laughs> and you don't practice, like you don't even play more than once or twice a week and we're playing just about every day. And it's a very hard game to be consistent at, but what you can do is be consistent in your approach and be consistent in the things that you do off the course, you know, consistent with your thoughts. And I think if you're consistent in those areas, your golf game fits from that. And like I said, there's just physical variances from day to day that you just can't control. Your body feels different some days or you wake up and it's cold and you don't like playing in the cold or it's really windy one day and you're just, you're not hitting your knockdowns very well. And there's just things that change a lot and you can't control those things. And, but I, just again have this new sense of belief and confidence in what I'm doing and that what I'm doing is very good and our goal between you and I now is to kind of not hit that panic button you know when you miss two cuts in a row and to continue to believe those things like I am right now because like I said I think if you do that long enough and keep it really simple things tend to work out pretty well we are going to take a quick break and we will be right back 
Electrolyte deficiency or imbalance can cause headaches, cramps, fatigue, brain fog, and weakness, which is the last thing you want when you're playing golf. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix. Each stick pack delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It's used by Olympians, professional athletes, special forces like the Navy SEALs, health experts, and for people like you and me who just want to maintain their everyday health. Now that it's a bit colder out, it gets crazy dry and hydration is as important as ever. Element has a ton of delicious flavors, I've tried a bunch of them, and they just released their new chocolate medley line which allows you to enjoy Element Hot. You've got chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry to choose from, and they're all designed to be enjoyed hot. They also have a no-risk refund policy. If you don't like it, just send it back for a full refund. Now for our special offer for Sweet Spot listeners. If you want to give Element a try and get a free special gift, go to drinkelement.com forward slash sweet spot. Once again, that's drinklmnt.com forward slash sweet spot. When you're hiring for your small business like I have to, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to find the right professionals for your team faster and free. And you can always support us by checking them out at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just another job board. It is a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. I know a ton of people who are using it for multiple reasons, and LinkedIn has absolutely exploded over the last few years. There's wonderful content on business ideas, but more importantly, it gives you access to professionals that you can't find anywhere else. Anyone who runs a small business knows that hiring is easy when you can get that quality candidate. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate from LinkedIn Jobs within 24 hours. LinkedIn knows that people like me and other small businesses like Adam or maybe you are wearing so many hats and you might not have the time or resources to hire. It's not like all of us can have our own HR department. That's why there are over 2.5 million small businesses using LinkedIn for hiring. If you want to give it a shot and post your job for free, go to linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Anyone who listens to the show or has read my book knows that I'm big on habits and you know taking care of little things. And this is nothing new. Like people know this stuff, but you know, McKenzie has been on the PGA Tour for seven years. He's kept his card. He's done an incredibly hard thing. And I was with you in Memphis, not the whole time for part of it. And I saw how you prepare. And more importantly, I saw how you reacted because that was a rough finish. If anyone was watching Memphis, like that week is brutal. Like the end of the PGA Tour is brutal with the FedEx playoffs. The PGA Tour concocts these situations for drama where someone is on the bubble. And that week you were on the bubble for the 50th spot, which was a big deal. It meant going on to the next event. It meant going on to all of the signature events in 2024. And... I was watching at home. You're sitting in the clubhouse after you're done. And what happened? Like Hideki Matsuyama, what, he birdie five holes out of the last nine? He went, I think uh, it he was. went uh, five under his last six, actually, to knock me yeah. out by one spot. Yeah, it was hard because there were a few guys in front of you who actually did you a favor yep. and you were on the 50th spot yeah. and it looks like you were in. Yeah. And then Hideki just came out of nowhere and it was tough. And 
what I noticed in McKenzie and, and the reason he is successful is that was a huge punch in the stomach. And literally the next day he comes back and says, well, what can I control in my life on and off the course? What habits can I keep to make sure that, you know, I'm moving in the right direction. So this to me was fascinating just because, again, there was a huge disappointment and under 24 hours later, he has a plan for himself and I'm going to hold him accountable to it. And it didn't happen overnight. There was two plus months since then and you didn't play great immediately after that. But there was this you know, belief that I'm going to keep my focus on my feet in front of me, control what I can, golf will be what it will be. And you were just incredibly confident. I remember even after Napa, I think you made the cut and you finished 52nd, which wasn't like a blistering finish, but you're like, I know I'm doing the right things right now and something good's going to come out of it. And eventually it did. You had the best back-to-back finishes of your career and there's going to be missed cuts in the future. But I think to me, that's one of the things that a lot of golfers can learn in life or on the golf course is that it's not these like grand goals that we have to go towards. It's like breaking things down into their littlest forms and holding yourself accountable to them and just checking off the boxes. And it makes you feel good about yourself and you can build to something bigger. And that is so hard to do because again, every week he's traveling to Japan, he's traveling here and he doesn't get the result he wants. And now he has to come back home and says, well, I'm going to keep doing this no matter what happens. And that to me is we talk about we're working hard to keep things simple Like that's what's hard to do. Like people say, I want simple and basic, but that's hard to actually do, I think. Especially, I think now on the PGA Tour, because it's very easy to, like we have so many things at our disposal that could make things super complicated. I mean, you could have a putting coach, a short game coach, a full swing coach, you know, mental coach, trainer, stats guy, you name it. You can just... You can put a lot of people around you, but that's a lot of voices, a lot of things, moving parts. I mean, my team right now is you know fairly small, and I don't currently have a coach, and things are just feeling as clear as they've ever felt for me. And I think that again, like we talked about earlier, my tendency is to is to add things or to make things more complicated than they need to be. And so we talked about, yeah, like stripping away a few things and really just getting down to the bare essentials of what do you need to do? What are my key things to work on? Where are the key areas I need to improve? Like we talked about, you know, off the tee, approach play, like or a couple areas that like I'm a little bit conscious of going forward this season and kind of improving those stats. And yeah, like just really making it simple. Like, I mean, strokes gained off the tee, like how do I make that better? Well, I become a little bit more reliable hitting one shot. And I probably become a little bit more reliable when I don't have my best stuff to find a shot that I can hit under pressure or when I don't have it to put it in play. And I could make leaps and bounds and improvements on my strokes gained off the tee next year by hitting one more fairway next year and hitting one less foul ball. I mean, that's kind of as simple as we could make it, right? I mean, I could make it very complicated. I could find a new swing coach and overhaul my swing in the attempt to find some perfect move. But really it's that simple. I just I need to hit one more fairway, which I can do. And we talked about this as well. It's like that one more fairway or that one less foul ball is maybe two moments where you're more committed. 
right? You're more committed to what you're doing. You're more committed to your, the shot you're trying to hit. You have a good plan. You have a good thought. Maybe it's well thought out strategy. You know, maybe it's like, Hey, on this hole, it's driver because it's actually wider at 300 than it is at 275 or, you know, maybe it's a hole I really don't feel comfortable on. And it's like, Hey Mac, just hit seven wood off a tee and you might hit six iron in, but you know, you put it in the fairway rather than hitting it out of bounds because you're uncomfortable, then that's a win. And that's an improvement on uh, your stroke gain numbers. So I think for me, like I said, it's just those little things. And I think right now I'm doing a really good job of, like I said, of just making it simple, focusing on those little things every day. And then hopefully looking back, you know, after this next year and being like, yeah, I accomplished my goals because I just kind of kept putting one foot in front of the other and, and kept believing in what I'm doing and rather than, you know, having a result or two that you didn't like and kind of going backwards because you're trying to add all these different things. You're trying to change a bunch of stuff. And so I got a really nice feeling that 2024 is going to be a nice year for me. One of the reasons I'm glad you're saying all that is because I think in golf, we're just all tempted to complicate things. And I'm not saying that, you know, the mindset that McKenzie has or that I'm advocating is like the way it's a way. And, you know, one of my goals for the last 10 years is even in my own game is like, as I've gotten better, things have becoming more clear and simple on the golf course with my thoughts and the targets I choose. And that takes a lot of work. And I just want people to know, like, that's an option and that's a goal where you want to simplify things as much as possible because everything in golf pushes you in the other direction to where you want to add more shots, more analysis. And what I think that does is, you know, when you get that moment on the course like McKenzie has and he has to hit that driver, let's think of an example like the 3M in Minnesota. You had that, was it the third hole you were uncomfortable the with? The second shot? hole. Second hole. Yeah. yeah, so the second hole you know, was something he told me, like, I'm a little uncomfortable with this tee shot. So we just kind of rationally talked through it. I looked at some shot length data. We looked at the width of where driver was landing and where laying back was ending. And it's just a hard golf hole, right? Like you have to hit a good tee shot. You have to hit a good approach shot. There's water off the tee. There's water on the approach shot. And I think he played the, the hole under par for the week and you hit driver every time. But it was kind of talking through it rationally and just saying like, here's the target. Here's the club we think this is the right decision. Yeah. You step up and you yeah. accept the results. And then what else can you do? And also, I think sometimes looking at a matter of fact like that gives you more calm because you're looking at a, you're looking at the hole and you're thinking to yourself like, okay, I, I, I've got the plan. Like I know it's driver. There's no doubt there. And also you're looking at the landing area thinking to yourself like, you know, in, in the, you know, area of play that, you know, let's say around 300 yards, which is about what I hit it off the tee, you know, there's plenty of room. You know, and, and that hole to me, you know, while it it is difficult in the fact that there's penalties right, there's penalties left, the area that you're hitting to, you know, was still normal enough. Like it wasn't like it was, you know, super pinched and super narrow. There was enough room out there. And when you look at it more matter of factly and kind of taking an approach of, you know, like you looked at shot data and looked at like the, I think the Google Earth image of it. And you kind of see, okay, there's enough room out there you hit a normal shot with your normal dispersion patterns with a good target. Most times it's going to work out just fine. But I think in our, in my head, like I'm someone that, you know, tends to have some negative thoughts creep in or some doubt. And I, you know, I, I can see that ball going in the water and reteeing. 
or I could see that ball, you know, like a bailout left and you pull it, hits the car path, it goes out of bounds. Like I see those things happening in my head at times. And then, you know, I remind myself, okay, well, those are possibilities for sure. I mean, but if I get up there and hit, you know, pick a good target, commit to what I can control, you know, I'll hit enough good shots that, you know, it'll work out just fine. And I think that it's probably, again, reassuring to know that tour players have the same sort of thoughts that, you know, an amateur could have. But yeah, it's it's very real to have, you know, water on your right and to see that as a possibility, right? It stares you right in the face. You know, that fear and that doubt is real for us too. And we're trying to find ways to overcome that as well. So rational thought, rational discussions, and then, you know, good, clear thought processes are really important. Thank you for being so honest about it. It's just, again, I think a lot of tour players don't talk about this a lot. I thank you for doing that. But just keep in mind, like, this guy is, I don't know what, you're like 65th in the world right now. You've been top 30 in the world. You've been a top 100 golfer in the world for many years now. And I think we watch these broadcasts and we're like, oh, he's standing over an eight foot putt or a drive and he's like 100% locked in and like mentally perfect. And like, it's just not true. Like we, you know, if you set that as the goal, like you're only going to face disappointment as a 10 handicap, scratch golfer, whatever. And being honest about it is helpful. So yes, thank you for being honest for that. One thing that I, uh, Adam is not here and Adam wrote an awesome book about practice. The practice manual has a lot of great stuff on practice. And we talk about practice a lot on this show. We talk about the benefits of repetitive practice and random practice and challenging yourself. And one thing that, you know, I've noticed with you, I've gotten a front seat to how you prepare and practice, whether that's on an off week or at a tournament. Talk a little bit about your philosophy on practice and the types of habits you have, because I think it'll be eye-opening for some people to hear your methods which are not going to be the same as every tour players but they're yours yeah so i've been super fortunate to have had so many great coaches along the way so that's first and foremost i think from my junior golf days i played golf at a club called dundas valley and i had a great first coach there who got me into the game and then I, in my teenage years, worked with a guy back in Hamilton named Scott Cox and, you know, learned a lot from him. And then I went to the national team program and I worked with Derek Ingram and the, you know, Golf Canada's national team just had a bunch of resources available to me that were tremendously helpful and kind of helped me build, you know, all of these practice habits I have now were kind of built through the years. And, you know, I worked with Ralph Bauer on tour and I've worked with Josh Gregory and these coaches teach you a lot. And, you know, and hopefully, you know, and through that, like they've learned from me, you know, here and there as well. But like those relationships were, were hugely beneficial for me. And, and, t- and talking about practice, like practice for me, and if I can give you an example, would be like if I have, let's say, three hours to go just practice, I'm not going to play and I go to the range, so let's say I'm going I'm to devote an hour of time to hitting balls, I might spend 15 minutes in my warm-up kind of doing block. So I would you know, have a stick down, working on alignments, maybe working on a couple little small drills, reinforce a couple feels, and I would spend 15 minutes warming up, going through the bag just to get loose. And then I would spend the next 45 minutes testing myself like crazy so it would be like 
whether it be a wedge game, you know, 15 shots, high focus, trying to land on my number, getting a score on track, man. Then I might go into, uh, you know, an iron game where, you know, I might vary the targets. I might keep it on one target, focusing on distance control. But again, it's more of a quality over quantity thing for me. So I might only hit, you know, in that 45 minutes, I might only hit another 50 balls, right? I'm not raking hit, rake, hit, rake, hit. I want to hit balls that I'm, you know, fully focused on. There's consequence. There's an outcome that I'm trying to achieve. And I only get one chance to do it. And I think that in my practice, I try to get to that place as much as possible because it's the closest thing I can do to being on the golf course. So again, with my putting, it'd be very similar where I would, I always start my putting practice off with about 15 minutes of start line work. So it's a chalk lines or a string, straight putts, left to right, right to left. And I want to see that ball going in the hole and I want to see it starting online. I'm not really working on stroke mechanics. You know, it's really just to kind of see that ball starting online, going in the hole. And then from there, I want to play games. I want to do, let's say I do nine holes. I'll do a short putt, medium putt, long putt, three times each. And let's say the short putt is like six to eight feet, a putt that I should make. The medium putt's going to be like a 15 to 20 footer, so a good birdie chance. And then the long putt, let's say it's like a 40 to 50 footer. So I'm working on speed. And my goal on those nine putts would be to be 300 par, par two. So now I'm going to hit nine putts with like full routine, full read, full focus with an outcome in mind. But I'm going to go through the same kind of thought process I do on the golf course in these nine putts. So they're going to be very game-like, game scenario. And for me, I'm going to get way more value out of that. Let's say that takes 10 minutes. I'll get more value out of that than I would if I was to spend 45 minutes on the putting green, just like hitting three balls at random, just putting around for nothing. You know, no consequence, no real thought. But if I hit a putt from one spot and then hit two more from the exact same spot, when do you ever get to do that? I mean, never, you never get to just like retry the shot, do it again. You know, sure. You might build some feel and some touch for the speed of the greens. But to me, if you're talking about getting like bang for your buck and value, and I think you probably talked about this a lot with your practice, like being efficient, people don't have a lot of time sometimes to spend hours on end practicing and now with three kids, I don't either. So, it, you know, my practices has to be a little different too, right? I have to be efficient. I want to be home for my family when I'm here in Charlotte. And so that's important to me that I'm efficient with what I do when I practice. And, you know, that's a way to do that. So, yeah, to format my practice, like I said, it's it's very little block and a lot of randomized specific practice. And I guess to that point, I would say that to me, the best practice that I can do now in my mind is playing golf. Like the best way to simulate tournament golf for me now is to go play a round of golf with some guys here, some good players play for something, play for a little bit of money, whatever it is and test myself on the golf course where, you know, I'm going to feel things very close to what I feel when I play regular rounds of golf on the PGA tour. Now they're not, not as extreme and not as intense, but the things that you do, you know, Again, each shot is different. You're having to make those calculations, those different thought processes for each shot, their strategy in mind. So like to me right now, I've been a big fan of uh, I've got four hours or three hours. I'm going to go try and play around a round of golf. 
I'm not going to just go to the range and hit balls and, and putt and chip. Like there's still value to that. And I still enjoy doing that. And there's a need for that still, but I've definitely shifted my focus more towards playing golf, learning to score, thinking through shots, you know, with good strategy on the golf course, even when I'm just playing for fun, like, Hey, I've got five iron in my hand, you know, let's pick a good target 25, 30 feet left of this hole right in the middle of the green, you know, let's play the odds, you know, a little bit decade in there, right. You're like, Hey, five iron, it's not really a scoring opportunity. There's, you know, a deep bunker on the right. And if I hit this ball in the middle of the green, it's going to be a great shot. And I think that like when you go through a round of golf, whether it's, you know, a casually or in a tournament, it's like that's the more you do that, the more you think through those things, the more second nature they become when you need to do it under the gun. So like when I do it here for a casual round of golf here in Charlotte, I think my decision making is going to be better when I'm playing in a tournament on the PGA tour. So if I just hit balls and chip and putt and I go to Maui or I go to a tournament here in the next like month or two, like that's not going to benefit me scoring the ball and playing golf when I have to. That's kind of my philosophy on practice. It's, it's, Again, like I said, it's been shaped by a lot of, you know, smart people I've been in touch with and that I've worked with. And now I feel like it's something that I do really well and it's, you know, very effective and, you know, highly specialized as to like, okay, I need to be efficient. I need to get the most out of this that I can. And this is the way I do it. So I've got a plan when I go to the course and I can get in there, get my work done, feel great about it, and then go home and spend time with my family. Yeah, I think your approach to practice is very, it makes perfect sense with the level you're at. You know, you don't need to spend, I think a lot of people assume like, oh, PGA Tour players are just banging 300 balls in a block format. And some of them are. We've heard stories of guys who just, right, I'm sure you see them all the time. But, you know, for your style, I think you have a good mix of the playing games, you know, getting the beginning is kind of calibration that blocked part getting calibrated alignments, good, hit some stock shots and then move on to it. And one thing I would note again, I don't expect everyone to have the same level of intensity as McKenzie. You don't have to, because you're not playing golf for a living. But, you know, one thing I noticed when I was in Memphis with him, especially on the putting green and the wedge area, you know, he went in with a very specific plan. Again, it's his job, but I saw him go through it, starting off with the eight footers, and it's pretty fun. You're one of the better putters on tour. I mean, when you watch a PGA Tour pro (laughs) hit eight footers, the make rate is not 50% when they're practicing. I think I saw him hit 30, 40, 50 in a row, like no problem. It's really special to watch. But the one thing I noticed was that it is so distracting out there. Maybe it's not for you anymore. But there's people everywhere. There's The green is loaded with players, their coaches, tour reps, the golf media. Like there are just people everywhere. And it did you have to learn that after a while, like just to deal with all of the distraction and like just how crowded it is when you're going to work like that? You have to put your blinders on to an extent because, I mean, you could spend, I have, you know, a lot of good friends on tour and I've got... You know, there's club reps that I, you know, enjoy talking to and this and that. And you could spend a full day out there and get not much done if you get caught in conversation <laughs> yeah, just, to conversation. And I think that yeah, that's just, why yeah, I do that's why I do go in with a you know a focused plan, let's say for the day. If I, I go there on a Tuesday and 
let's say I've got two hours of practice plan and I'm going to go play nine holes. Well, my two hours of practice is going to be really focused and efficient and I'm really going to limit my conversations and I have to be mindful of that. And that's why, again, having a plan is good because if you get into a task, you're probably not going to stop it for a conversation. Like if I'm in the middle of a putting drill and someone says hi to me, like I'm going to say hi. And then, you know, it's probably going to be the end of the conversation because I'm trying to do something. I'm trying to work and I want to get my job done and I want to go home and I want to rest. And so I think I've gotten better at that through the years. I think early on in my career that I wasn't as good at that. Like you could spend an extra hour at the course just because of getting caught up in conversations and this and that. And I've tried to be better there because, you know, in most cases, my family is with me or, or traveling with me and, you know, it's nice to be home, go to see them. And again, it just, I like being efficient. So again, if I have a plan I can kind of avoid some of that wasted, not wasted time, that's not the right word, but just not being as efficient as you could be when you're trying to work. That's something I try to do. So, and it's really the same applies here in Charlotte when I'm practicing, let's say I practice at the club, I try and find, you know, quiet areas. If I'm, if I only have two hours and I need to get some quiet work done, I just try and find an area where I, I might not be, you know, let's say in the middle of the action, you know, I try and maybe find the other end of the range or because as much as it's like everyone's escape, it's my job, you know? So it's kind of a weird dynamic because like people go to the club to escape their other job, but like I'm going to do my actual job. Yeah. This is work. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it's like, Oh man, what a beautiful office. I'm like, yeah, this literally is my office and I'm working to try and get better. And that's hard because like, I'm a nice person and I'm not going to tell someone to buzz off if I'm, you know, in the middle of practicing and they come up to me, but it's also something, again, you just have to be a little bit mindful of and not push people away, but just kind of politely, you know, kind of end the conversation as kind of nice as you can and get back into working because like I said, with three kids, my practice has dramatically changed. I used to spend eight hours at the golf course, nine hours at the golf course when I was before I had kids. And it'd be like a full round of golf practicing for three or four hours. And I would do that like every day. And that was okay because my wife was working. Right. So she's gone all day. I'm gone all day. There was nothing to come home to. I was in full grind mode and I could do that. And now, you know, I've got school drop off, school pickups. I've got, Christmas performances and I've got doctor's appointments for the kids and you know we're, we're building a house right now to so get house appointments and this and that and you're just being pulled in a lot of different directions so and you've got a coach with a podcast asking you to come exactly, on for an hour exactly and a half. so there's just <laughs> you know a lot of things that you have to allow time for and and yeah being an old man like I am now I'm 33 you have lots of responsibilities so no it's uh I put this out in a tweet the other day and I stand by that i just believe that the pga tour is an incredible place to work i'm extremely blessed that that's my platform right now yeah going to year eight so it's pretty exciting i'm i'm looking forward to it well i think there's a lesson in there for everyone again in the context of other people having other jobs and limited time to practice but yeah that's what i noticed is that he showed up to the putting green went through what he had to you went to the wedge area you play a game out there with your wedges where you're scoring each shot. He did some bunker yep. shots. He did some kind of short-sided shots. He went through a variance of shots he would be facing that week on the course. I mean, even after you were done with your round, like we were in a pro-am 
you're back on the putting green afterwards. After you finished your first round, you were back on the putting greens afterward. You have a kind of a routine you go through. And I think, again, it doesn't need to be so intense for everyone else, but when you have a plan beforehand or at least some goals that you're looking to accomplish, it staves off that desire to just rake through balls or maybe not be engaged as much. And that's something I noticed. And again, all the other tour players as well were very locked in as well. But that's something, you know, there isn't, I always say there's not a ton of things everyone can learn from you guys because you have a skill set that is unimaginably good. But yeah, I think the attention to detail, the focus, the plan is something we all can learn about. And that's why we continue to talk about it on the show. One question we did get on Twitter, which actually will be very appropriate since we're heading into the winter months. You're Canadian. You grew up in a colder climate. You went to Kent State, which is in Ohio. That is not California or Florida. So you spent a lot of your developmental years in a cold climate, which I think is, you know, I'm from the Northeast. We don't have a ton of guys making it to the PGA Tour and girls to the LBGA Tour from around here. I think Cam Young is really the only one in recent memory. And it's, you know, a lot of us say, well, we're not a year-round golf area. So what was your best way to practice during the winter? You guys have longer winters up there when you're growing up because people are always looking for practice ideas. How do you make it work in the colder months? Yeah, certainly not ideal, but I think <laughs> what like people look at it like that and look at it as a disadvantage for sure. But I also didn't know any different, right? So at the time, like I'm growing up in Canada as a teenager or let's say I'm 12, 13, 14, and I become a teenager, like, I don't know what it's like to grow up in Florida and play year-round. All I know is that, you know, come November, it snows a lot. And by about the end of March, the snow is gone, and I can play golf again. But that's all I know. That's <laughs> all I know. So you adapt, and you just, for me, I guess, at a young age, let's say from 8 until I was like 14, 15, you know, my winters involved playing a lot of sports. So played hockey. I played volleyball in like middle school and in high school. I put I was a curler. I played curling. I don't know if you've ever seen curling nice. plays. So, oh, so like people get excited on the Olympics recently for curling. It is fascinating yeah, to it's watch. It's actually a lot of fun. And anyway, so I played a lot of different sports through the winter growing up and that was really how I spent my winters. My golf clubs were not really a huge part of that. Now I would say I still spent like a few days a week swinging into a net. So we'd have like uh, hitting bays at my club and you could go in and spend time. And I might, you can only do that for so long. So you might spend an hour or two doing that, but you can't spend six hours hitting balls into a net. I mean, that would just drive you nuts. Yeah. Well, you didn't have launch monitors back no, then. No, no. So like you're just looking at the feedback from like your swing, the strike. And so I think that definitely helped. You might have like little putting greens set up, like again, very small turf carpet things that like aren't like they are now certainly but just something to like hit putts work on your setup and so like a lot of it was you probably would do more like technical work and more of that stuff in the winter so if you had any like kind of changes you're trying to make or technique stuff you're working on well that was a good time to do it because you kind of get comfortable at least hitting balls and feeling those things much of a thought about the outcome so in that sense it's kind of nice hitting balls into a net but there's certainly no better feedback than playing outside, playing on grass. So, but that was just my reality is that I would, yeah, I would spend that time playing other sports, 
making sure I still kept swinging the club. That's important. It's like a muscle you need to keep, keep training. I think if you don't swing a club for four or five months in the winter, it's difficult to pick it up in the spring and just be like, oh yeah, you know, I'm loose and everything, but you haven't like trained that muscle in a while, you know, and there's different things in your body that fire. And it's like, I mean, it's like an exercise and you need to like keep doing it and to stay up with it so that you keep those muscles strong and moving well. So yeah, swinging the club a few days a week for a couple hours and then the nets and, you know, doing a little bit of putting on carpets and in the cups and yeah, it wasn't super fancy, but, and then yeah, I went to Kent state, which again, isn't really much of an improvement on the weather. So you're thinking to yourself, like, why would you go to a place that like has very similar weather to Canada? <laughs> but we had a great indoor facility there, which like, you know, had garage doors that opened up in this facility that you could hit onto the range. So there were, you know, heated bays with track man set up. And again, it's not like being at somewhere in Florida or somewhere down the South where you could play outside year round. But I don't know, it was just, it was the right fit for me, indoor putting green and all that. So like, there was ways to stay sharp that were again, just different. But like, again, for me, that was like, that felt like a cheat code coming from where I came, where it was like, I hit in the nets and there was like no real good putting greens and, and all that sort of stuff. But now it's like, I have like a legitimate place to practice in the winter when it's nice out. So that was awesome. And at the time, I mean, Kent state had one of the best facilities in the country for that. And now I look at the facilities, you know, 15 years later and they're all just state-of-the-art you know all the simulators all the launch monitors the putting greens are all like virtual technology based with like the putt views and the changing slopes and i mean it's incredible what the kids now have at some of these schools and so to answer your question the, yeah. The, yeah the winters were you know a bit of a mixed bag but just like i don't know it was all i knew and maybe it is a disadvantage maybe i could have been better at a younger age with more of a year-round practice built in but that's where i was born not much i could do about that well i think a lot of the things you've said are not too dissimilar we get asked this question a lot like what i do in the winter and like yeah some people just if you've got the net in your house i think the number one thing that you said that i always sell to people as well is just don't put the clubs away for four to five months like that is going to be the worst thing like if anything just being able to hit balls you know two or three times a week even 10 minutes like just keep the muscles going and you know doing off season is a great time to make a change i'm big into the fitness stuff people working out we've done episodes on this before but it's good to hear that because I think a lot of golfers say, well, like, well, if I can't do anything, I'm just going to put the clubs away. And I think that makes the spring a little bit more difficult because you're going to spend another month or two trying to get things back. So for everyone who religiously listens to us, you can always hit balls and focus on our big three impact location. You can still see start direction with your face angle. Like you can see if a ball started right or left. Not the best feedback in the world, but it's something. But just keep the muscles lubricated. We got a question about your favorite hole. Is it the ice rink at the uh, Canadian oh, Open? <laughs> that's actually been really cool. In the last, I think 2019 was the first year we did it. And then we went into the COVID break, which was unfortunate. But in 2019, we played at Hamilton, which is like 10 minutes from where I grew up. I played there a bit growing up as well. And they made the 13th hole the rink hole, which so around the tee block, they had these hockey boards put up. And, you know, when you came to the tee, you know, rather than like getting a, you know, an applause for walking up there, it was everyone banging on the boards, you know, and to me, it, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. And it's kind of fun to lean into that part of our 
heritage, if you will, or traditions. Like, I mean, obviously we're a big hockey country. We love hockey and to kind of lean into that and embrace that during the Canadian open is really cool. So I've been a big fan of it. I've really played into it the last few times I've been up there. I remember actually in 2019, it was really fun. The Raptors were making a run in the NBA finals and I wore a Kawhi Leonard jersey, I think, on Saturday. And, yeah, the place was going nuts because, obviously, you know, it was a big moment for Toronto and the Raps were playing great. And so I'll throw on the jersey on, and I think I hit a putt with the jersey on. So it's a lot of fun. I mean, the Canadian fans have been amazing the last handful of years, and we get so much support wherever we are, really, from Canadians all over the place. And that's really cool. And then to have as many guys as we have out there now, obviously, it's a cool group to be a part of. Yeah, you've got, I mean, when we were at the FedEx Cup playoffs, we were kind of counting up the Canadians, quite a few. Were you on the green when your buddy Adam got tackled by the security guard? That's a great story. And if you're a parent, you're really going to relate to this one. So I missed the cut that week and I was driving up from my mom's house in Dundas. So that's about an hour away from Toronto. And we were driving up I saw Nick was playing well. We were catching a flight that evening to the U.S. Open out of Toronto. And we're driving up, and we get about halfway to the golf course. And, like, Nick's, like, probably halfway through the back nine. I'm like, this is going to be perfect. We're going to get there for the finish. And I think he's going to do it, feeling great about it. And both my boys start throwing up in the car halfway to the golf course. <laughs> of course. Kids love to do and I'm that. And like, oh, my gosh. Like, and I'm like, immediately know that like my plan is ruined. We're definitely not going to the golf course now. We're cleaning up our rental car that's got puke all over it. We're cleaning, we're cleaning the boys <laughs> up. We're changing. We're in this random parking lot. And I'm watching so my the, sunscreen yeah, wasn't as bad. No, I'm watching the <laughs> watching the finish on my phone and you know, fist pumping and all that while I'm cleaning up puke. And I mean, it was like the most unbelievable finish. I've ever seen. I mean, you just couldn't write a better ending to that. I mean, Canadian, it was pretty Canadian wild. I watched it on TV. Winning, it was wild. Making a 72 foot eagle putt in a playoff, a little bit of rain coming down, you know, 18th green is just packed with people and you make that putt, all the stuff that happened afterwards. I mean, it was just like a moment that I'll never forget. And I wasn't there. Thanks to my, uh, barfing kiddos. So thanks. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. Adam Hadwin got tackled and you got puked all over. Yeah, yeah, same. Same but different. Nice, nice. You came out the other day with truthful, you know, your statements about where the PGA Tour is. Would you want to talk about that a bit? We're not a hot takes podcast. I think there's a lot of other golf podcasts like No Laying Up who handle the pro game. But, you know, we have a lot of people who listen to the show who are huge fans of pro golf. And obviously, it's December 11th today. We're a few days away from what happened with John Rahm. There's talks of Finau going and, and, and uh, Hatton going to live. And you came out with a pretty nice statement the other day. It was truthful. A lot of people appreciate it. I actually saw some media picked it up as I was preparing for this. But where do you stand or what are your feelings, at least, on where pro golf is? Like, you know, you kind of talked about growing up being a huge fan on the PGA Tour. It was your dream to play it. Now you're there. And there's obviously a lot of conflict going on. So what does it feel like to be in all the middle of this as a PGA Tour veteran? Yeah, I think, you know, the emergence of Live Golf really has put the game of men's professional golf in a really bad spot. 
there is no golfer in the world that's worth $500 million. There just isn't. And why do you think that is? Because some people say like, oh, if he got paid that much or whatever it was, like then he's worth it. Like there's no basis to prove that he's worth that. Like he's not going to like Otani who just signed for 700 million with the Dodgers. <laughs> he will sell jerseys. He will put people in the stands. He will potentially deliver on MVPs and championships to for that city, right? And he's going to bring buzz and excitement and people are, are going to go out in droves to see him play. And all the respect to John Rum, he's not going to do that for Live Golf. Live Golf is not a, a revenue making machine. They're just not making tons of money. Their product to me is not very good. So how do you justify spending that much money on somebody? To me it's just it's preposterous. It's crazy. There's only one golfer that might be worth that and his name's Tiger Woods and you know he turned that down. He's not going. So yeah, I like that he's on our side of this whole thing. But I just think that pre pandemic golf was in an amazing place. I think it was really strong. We had tons of great players emerging. And even through COVID, like we we did some great things. Like the interest was up in golf and we were doing really well up until this, you know, new entity came along. And now it's like golfers have this like warped perception of what they're worth and what money is out there just because this one group came along and decided that they just didn't care how much money they spent. They were just gonna keep throwing at golf an attempt to maybe lessen their public image of, you know, who they are. So I really just don't like it at all. I think that we have the exact same product that we're selling to people as four years ago, pre-pandemic, but now we're asking some of our sponsors to pay double the money to basically have the same product. I don't think it's a recipe for success if you are a business and then, just as, as we deal with our sponsors, right? I just don't think that's, that's just not going to last. You aren't going to keep people around if that's kind of the direction we're headed. So to me, like the economics of it don't add up, right? If the ratings and everything are the same, the price to sponsor should be the same. You know, it doesn't just double overnight because of a threat. So, and clearly that hasn't really kept the people around that we need to keep around. We've lost guys, even though we've, you know, had these things in the works, right? We've had Cam Smith and Brooks Kepka and these guys go and now John Rahm. And it's not as if like these big purses have kept guys around. The PIP money is there, but you know, John Rahm just got this PIP money and now he's bolted for live. So it's incredible to me that, yeah, we're throwing this kind of money around when it just doesn't really make sense to, and I'm obviously a direct beneficiary of it, so it seems kind of contradictory to say that. It's like I'm, you know, taking money out of my own pocket. But it's just to me, that doesn't seem it doesn't seem right. Doesn't seem like we are appealing to the average golf fan. To me, I, I was thinking about it the other day. It would be cool to play a tournament or two where you played like some fan friendly tournaments where like you had like let's say input from some fans and like you played a couple tournaments a year where they were like had things that were kind of driven by fan based like votes like hey we're going to add in like two or three features to this event like what would you like to see in a PGA tour event and have like a fan vote on that right and be like maybe you want to see like more on course interviews maybe you want to see 
you know, more of the females playing with the males for an event. Maybe I don't know what it is and I don't know what those, you know, fun ideas are, but it'd be kind of cool to hear from fans and say like, Hey, what do you guys really want to see? Like what would make this product really fun and exciting and get some ideas, kind of spitball a little bit. Yeah. And play a few events where we kind of did those things and we kind of played to them a little bit because for me right now, it's kind of all about, it's all about money. It's all about everyone lying in their pockets. And you know, I don't think that when I first got on tour, I mean, I think one of the biggest things we talked about was like, the charity component to what, you know, the PGA tour does. And we donate as much as the other four major sports leagues combined, which to me is pretty cool. I mean, we're not nearly as big as those other leagues and to donate as much as we do to charity. That's really cool. Like we make an impact in the communities that we play. And I think that's something that people resonate with is that we are making the places that we play in better you know, when we leave those places, right? So we're, you know, we're making positive change in those places. And now it's like, hey, can we just add some more money to our purses? And, you know, that's going to maybe take away from some of the charitable aspect of it. But right now it's about making our players as rich as possible. So, I mean, that's probably about all I'll say there. But it, to me, I think we need to kind of, take a step back we need to really focus on like what the path forward is and yeah find a way to bring the best players in the world together again and i don't think it'll happen in in the next year or so but maybe you know a couple years down the line we'll have those guys back and there'll be some sort of solution to bring everyone together amicably which will be incredibly complicated to figure out (laughs) because obviously you've got guys like rom who secured you know, massive amounts of guaranteed money. And then there are guys that stayed and didn't get that kind of money. So how do you let a guy like Rum come back into the picture? Like how does he have to pay for that? Or how is there like a, you know, a justification for a, a Cam Young or a Will Zalatoris who said no. So that one will be very tricky to navigate, but the game is best when all the best players in the world are playing together and are not divided like they are. And, you know, the world rankings are a bit of a mess because you've got guys falling down the world rankings that are really, really good players, but aren't playing in world ranking events. So yeah, it's just a big mess. And I really want to get it cleaned up because I know that the fans, you know, probably are getting a bit frustrated and a bit tired of what's going on. And I am too. So I hope that there's good stuff coming forward and there's good, you know, plans in place to kind of get us going back in the right direction and hopefully before we know it, we're playing golf again and not making announcements on the news channels that we're signing with uh, different teams and different leagues and all this sort of stuff yeah it's been i mean i'm a pga tour professional golf fan for 30 years and i think it's just been a bit of a bummer the last couple of weeks that it's you know it's no different than let's say Patrick Mahomes and some of the top quarterbacks in the NFL got plucked away to another league. And you're like, Oh, well now the NFL is like not as strong. And now this other league is not as strong either. It's kind of watered down and it's just been, you kind of shared that sentiment on Twitter the other day in the thread you wrote, but yeah, it's just been kind of a bummer to watch. And by the time this episode comes out, maybe there'll be a better solution. (laughs) I know it's literally changing by the hour. The PGA tour came out last night and I said, I think they were, entertaining offers from that, that big sports group as, mm-hmm. as well as the PIF. Yeah. So again, it's not, I mean, 
I'm mostly focused on helping normal golfers get better. Yeah. So, but as a golf fan, it would well, be nice to see something. And of golf resolution. doesn't have the numbers like football does. So golf can't really afford to be divided and fractured because, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. you know, divided and fractured, you know, with already, you know, kind of a niche sport and small numbers, like you can't really sustain that. I don't think it's going to last like that. So to me, you really need to act quickly and find ways to, again, appeal to that fan again and remind that fan why they do watch, you know, the PGA Tour and why they, you know, should watch men's professional golf. And, you know, right now it's definitely not about the fan. And, you know, hopefully we get uh, our priorities back in order and we can figure it out. We shall see. Well, we're coming up to our time here. We usually like to limit our guests to 90 minutes because we don't want to take up too much of your day. Last question. When's the rapid fire? How about we doing rapid fire? <laughs> we got, I mean, we got some interesting questions on Twitter. I, I know where you were going to head with that last question. How many shots am I giving you per side? Yeah. If we play a match, how many shots are you giving me per side? If we're playing Torrey Pines South or are we playing your home course? Let's call it a neutral, a neutral site. site. A neutral championship site. Okay. And are we tipping it out? I mean, I don't hit it as far as you. I think my ball speed's 160 and yours is 175. So I'd like to play you at 68 to 6,900 yards. Let's say that. Okay. Um, and your handicap is? Plus two. I'm going to give you three aside. Three aside. Okay. I think that's fair. Let's make it happen one day. All right. Let's make it happen, and then we'll uh, we'll tell people who came out ahead. What are we playing for, though? <laughs> we'll do a NASA. We'll do. Uh, we'll keep it friendly. It'll be like 50, 50, 100, and press whenever <laughs> you want for half. And yeah. All right, that's fair. Three aside. Let's hear some of these random questions. All right. Maybe. Why did you pick? I mean, these are really random. Why did you pick Kent State over Penn State? I don't even know if that's true. Did you pick Kent State over Penn State? I did, and I saw that question. So I know who wrote that, John Dunlap. He actually took me on my visit there. He was the assistant coach at Penn State at the time. Oh, okay. So he's obviously, obviously a sense. listener or a follower <laughs> of yours. And you know, that's a great question. I went to Penn State. I loved everything about it. I went to a football game. Couldn't believe my eyes. I mean, as a kid from Canada you show up into a football game like that with a program like that. It was kind of one of those blow you away moments. Uh, it was raining and there was a hundred thousand people in there just jam packed in there and it was loud. And I was like, my gosh, this is pretty incredible. So there was kind of that component of it where I was like, this would be really cool to be part of like a really big school like that. But it kind of came down to me to a couple of things. I knew a couple of Canadians on the team at the time at Kent state so a few of my buddies were going there. So just like knowing even just one or two people there to start with, to me, was kind of big. I kind of felt like a little more comfortable just in that setting alone. And then, you know, my coach at Kent State, her page had a great track record of producing some great players. And those two factors combined were really what kind of swung me that, that direction. Penn State would have been an awesome choice as well. It's just, yeah, I just felt like the fit was just a little bit better at Kent State. And if I was going to play professionally, I thought that was maybe going to be my best chance to do it if I was to get, you know, under her page and kind of get his tutelage. So 
you know, maybe I would have won a major by now if I put it at Penn State, you know, or maybe, you know, I don't, I don't you know, we'll never know. <laughs> I think we'll it turned know, out. The, I think it turned, turned out pretty well. Pretty well, so, but, yeah. All right, here's another, well, hopefully, this isn't rapid fire question. This is a much bigger thing. And you, you actually expressed your opinions, but uh, Tony Andrade, who's a, a fellow Canadian, I know, he asked your thoughts on the ball rollback. Huh. You did share them on Twitter when it <laughs> happened. Quickly, I will give this like a quick 30-second answer. I believe that they are trying to target a very small percentage of people who hit the ball too far, in their opinion. So like the college golfers now, the men's professional game, that's who they're really trying to target, I guess. And to me, to penalize every other golfer in the same breath, to me, is just a bad decision, especially with where the game's at right now. All-time popularity numbers are way up for rounds. And I just, I don't see it being the best solution. And like I said, I, I'm not a fan of bifurcation, but it almost seems like that makes more sense than this, which, I mean, they're both not great options, but like, I just don't like the idea of penalizing a club golfer, even if it's just, Again, 10 yards, if you say, oh, it's just 10 yards, but 10 yards would suck. I wouldn't want to hit it 280 in the air. I like hitting it 290 in the air. And the same with the average golfer. And I just, I don't like it. And I hope that they can find another solution or that in the time that it takes to get to that, you know, point where it happens, they've, you know, figured things out or they've, you know, had enough feedback where people just really say, hey, this is not what we want. So, I don't know uh, how that's going to go or if there's even any wiggle room there or if they're even going to budge. But to me, I don't like it, and I hope that it doesn't go through. All right. That was succinctly stated. Moving along, I actually asked you this, and you sent me a picture of your TrackMan numbers. But there's been – we need to get Joe Mayo on the show, and it's really Adam's responsibility. He knows Joe. But recently, we were actually next to Joe Mayo and Victor Hovland on the range one day in Memphis. So obviously Hovland has really improved his wedge game. You have been one of the best wedge players in the world for a long time. And Joe's stance was that, you know, he has Hovland like 10 angle of attack, tons of shaft lean, which kind of goes against modern wedge play. And to be fair with Joe, he's not saying it's the only way to do it. He's saying it's a way to do it, saying that, you know, going super shallow and quote unquote using the bounce, that doesn't work for a lot of players and it didn't work for Victor. You don't think about your wedge technique a ton. Like you sent, you didn't even know. Like you sent me your TrackMan numbers. I think you were negative five angle of attack, something like that, on a, on a neutral pitch shot. Yeah, I'm one of those guys that if you were to ask me, like, "Hey, Matt, like, what shaft do you play on your driver?" I wouldn't even be able to tell you. You know, like, <laughs> I don't, like know, the the, I don't, I don't even, I don't even know the loft of my driver. So I'm probably bad when it comes to this stuff. But for me, short game and wedge play and putting and all that stuff, like that's a feel thing for me and I've kind of just figured out a way for me that works really well. And I'm more of like a Steve Stricker, Jason day where I'm kind of wide to wide, not a lot of wrist hinge. Uh, I would not be nearly as uh, steep as a Victor, more of a picker. And yeah, that to me works really well. And I've just gotten really good at kind of knowing that and knowing me learning how to play all kinds of different shots you look, I think Jordan Spieth was probably the example he used the most when he was talking about that. It's like he's a steep guy, a lot of lead edge, a lot of, a lot of handle forward, kind of sticks it in the ground a little bit. But he's like really, really good at that. I would think to me there are more people that would be better at 
sweeping and using the bounce then there would be guys that could just like to put that lead edge on the ball every time in like wet or like grainy conditions is super risky because that ball can end up a foot in front of you like really quickly i mean you just catch it just fractionally heavy i mean that ball is going nowhere so like for me i find that like i'm just making my margin for error bigger like when I use the bounce, when I put the ball more forward in my stance, face a bit more open, I'm just allowing myself more room for error. So I can actually like hit the ball heavy, per se. Like I hit the ground first, and that ball might still end up five feet from the hole. Where like if I use the other method and I kind of go more speed, like if my contact's not perfect, well then I might make bogey pretty quickly. And I think that for me, I'm just trying to make it as easy as possible for myself, and that's something that I've gotten pretty good at. And I think whenever I've kind of seen people in pro-ams, I try to teach them a little bit more ball forward, a little more open face, and kind of more like putting motion than it would be like, hey, I want you to like, you know, hinge your wrist and kind of bang down on it and get really steep. It tends to work out pretty well for them, but I'm not saying it's the only way, but definitely the way that I tend to do it. When I was in Memphis with you, there was a moment where I got to watch you and Spieth were right next to each other in the practice area hitting wedge shots. And I was just kind of observing it. And like, yeah, I was looking at Spieth up, up close. I'm like, there's tons of shaft lean. He's digging. And it's just pretty crazy to watch. And just watching you in the practice round, like, you know, you throw a ton of balls around the green, hitting all different shots. It reminded me of this moment I used to, there was this clip of Shaq that never left me. I think professional athletes in general, like what you see on the playing field is just like a small snippet of their abilities. There was this clip of Shaq when he was on the Lakers playing like a pickup game and he was going up and down the court like a point guard, could literally do anything he wanted. But of course, if you watch him in an NBA game, his skill set was a lot tighter because it's game time and the competition is fiercer. And watching you hit all these different wedge shots around the green and your putter too. I was just like, I mean, he was casually knocking in 40 footers, like putting the ball wherever he wanted. Like it was truly wild, like to watch someone who, you know, that is your, you know, on the PGA tour, you're a great ball striker, but statistically you're a better putter and wedge player than most people on tour. And it was just, you know, as a golf fan, it was wild for me to see that in person, but also like the variety of the techniques that were used, that I saw on the practice screen. It was very cool to see. So yeah, I think, you know, we're going to get Joe on to discuss that at some point, but I think it's one of those things like I'm getting help in my wedge play. I saw Andrew Rice recently and we're kind of doing more of, you know, I'm not going to hit very down on it. I think it's different. It depends on everyone's tendencies, which is kind of what you said, but thank you for clarifying that. I'm looking through the questions here. Here's a quick one for you. I know you're a Maple Leafs fan. Well, it's a double question. Where did you get your yardage book cover? And will the Leafs ever win a cup? <laughs> so, <laughs> Those are two different questions. So there's a company called Tinbox that makes like custom yardage covers. So the okay. one that I got that's got the, you know, it's kind of like an alligator skin leather with the Leafs logo on it and my name, just Mac. So you can kind of customize it however you want. I've got one that I made from them that's got a Canada flag on one side and the Kent State logo on the other side. They're nice. They hold a nice yardage book like perfectly. You can kind of customize on the inside a little bit if you want with quotes or different words. And those are pretty cool i actually um i've got a few of them now and they're always kind of 
a big hit like the Leafs one always gets a bit of play like when I'm playing well and I pull it out like I get Leafs fans commenting on that and saying it's pretty cool so uh yeah tin box partners tin yeah. box all right and nice. then um, a free plug free plug for tin box and then the Leafs will win a cup and I don't know when but they will do it I'm confident they can do it Man, I'm going to be that guy and say, maybe this is the year, you know, maybe this is that year. I've been saying it for the last five, but I really feel like they, I mean, <laughs> they have the pieces. I think their team is better now than it has been the last couple of years. And they've got some, some pieces now that are like, they got some toughness on their team now. And I feel like they haven't had that the last few years. And I, I like the additions they've added and yeah, I'm hopeful that uh, they can make a deep run this year. They made the first round of the playoffs has been have been conquered now, and now we're looking to make a deep run. So we'll see, but I, I like their chances. All right, we'll see what happens. I wish I could offer some analysis. I played some ice hockey as a kid, but I got to be honest, I have not <laughs> kept track of professional hockey in quite some time. I think we got to most of the Twitter questions. I don't know. Some guy's got a gif here of Booster Juice. I don't know what oh, the that, that, that is. That's, but, uh, that's an old uh, sponsor of mine. It, I can't, oh, I, can't, is it? <laughs> I can't pay you maybe in uh, in gift cards down, down the line. So uh, that, you got that going for you. And booster. So Booster Juice was one of, I'm assuming, one of your earlier sponsors. Yeah, yeah it's like a, it's a smoothie like juice company. And yeah, we'll, we'll hook you up one day, John. <laughs> I'm living the life now. <laughs> yeah. All right, I think we got through all the questions. Yeah, I think we're at our time here. I want you to go play golf or do something productive to improve your uh, standing on the PGA tour. So we won't keep you forever. We always give pro golfers a chance to plug their sponsors. If you want to thank people who support your playing career, go for it. Tell people where they can follow you or find you. That's usually our wrap up scenario there. Well, first and foremost, I'll thank my uh, wife for being very supportive and my, uh, (laughs) my kids who are my biggest fans. And then, yeah, I think that for me, there are, like I, I mentioned, some of those coaches along the way that have helped me a lot, which they can't be thanked enough. Yeah, my parents who got me started in the game, they're a big part of where I am today. And Huge sponsors. Huge sponsors of me, like the biggest sponsors. Poured all their hard work into me. And then, you know what? I actually, we haven't mentioned him at all in this podcast, but it's Mike Carroll with Fit for Golf. Yeah, Mike is a friend of the podcast. He's been a, he's he's been been a, big, he's been a big help for me. And if anyone's you know in some cold weather this winter and and wants to find some good workouts to, to kind of keep them busy in the winter that will help them play better golf, I would recommend downloading his app and kind of getting in there and getting dirty because I've been doing it for the last few years and it's made a big impact on my game. And I love just feeling good. The workouts are very easy to follow there's videos to follow they can be as quick and easy as you want so but yeah that's uh something i wanted to mention that he's been big help for me and yeah that's probably all i got but well listen appreciate you coming on it's been a really fun five months together i'm looking forward to what we can do in the future and hopefully you know your season's gonna be busy but it would be great to have you on maybe five, six months down the road, see how you're doing on tour and get a little recap of what's been going on. So thank you for the time. And as always, we'll wrap up here. You can find me, John Sherman. Check out my book, The Four Foundations of Golf on Amazon. You can check out Adam's. Adam wasn't here today, but we'll plug his stuff, adamyounggolf.com. Check out the practice manual, his online lessons. His digital platform is awesome. 
And thank you to everyone who tunes in every week, your feedback, your support, appreciate it. And we will see you next week with a new episode.